0: Let us pray. Oh Lord God, as we come now to open the word this evening. May we hear your call tonight to worship with thanksgiving. May we see, O God, the reasons to worship you with thanksgiving and the results. Lord, that we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us to give us understanding this evening. And you would bless the reading hearing, and preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are able to remain standing, please do so and turn in your copies of God's word to Psalm 111. Psalm 111, we'll begin at verse 1 and read to the end. Verse 10, hear now the word of God. It is infallible, it is inerrant. It is God speaking to us, so let us pay close attention. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hand are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the Word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Again tonight, we have given God thanks for His many blessings as we always do at this time of year. and It is appropriate to come not only tonight, but every Lord's Day and worship God with thanksgiving. And that is exactly what this psalm is about. How we who are to worship God, we are to worship Him with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, Psalm one hundred and eleven, and the psalms that follow were were penned by David for the service of the church and their solemn feast. This is rightly called a psalm of praise. Praise the Lord, or Hallelujah! Praise the Lord, Hallelujah! Praise Jehovah. The very beginning of this psalm tells us that we must. Address ourselves to the use of this psalm with hearts that are disposed to praise God. Now, hopefully, by way of our Thanksgiving testimonials, they got those testimonials got our hearts disposed tonight to praise Him. So the psalmist is exhorting God's people. He is exhorting us to the praise of God. And as he exhorts us he sets himself as an example. Just as he calls us to praise the Lord he himself in this psalm praises the Lord. He then furnishes us with the matter for the praise of God and, and that matter, the reasons why are from the works of God. And in the end he recommends the Holy Fear of God. A conscientious obedience to the commands of God. And he reminds us that that obedience is the most acceptable way of praising God. And so again, we have many reasons to be thankful tonight. Many reasons to come and to praise our God. And so there are three things I want us to to hear and see tonight from This psalm, and first of all, I want us to hear the call to worship God with thanksgiving. That call is given to us in verse 1 Praise the Lord, or praise Jehovah. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. The psalmist here declares his intention. And it is simply this. He is going to praise his God. Hopefully that is our intention this evening. That is our intention every time we gather together in public corporate worship. The psalmist declares his intention to praise God with a whole heart as an act of public worship. Notice he will give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart. With his whole heart, we are to do the same. When we think of obedience, what is does God? What pleases God in obedience? Half-hearted or, or whole-hearted obedience? Whole-hearted obedience. As we come and worship tonight, what pleases God? A, a heart that is halfway into worship or a whole heart. And mind and soul and strength, worshiping Him with every ounce of our being. This is what the psalmist is calling us to to come and give thanks to the Lord, to Jehovah, with our whole hearts. And notice where? In the company of the upright. In the congregation. Now, what is the congregation? Is the congregation assembled for worship? The writer of Hebrews tells us, does he not? In Hebrews 10, that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That same idea is found here. We come and we praise God as His people in the congregation or in the assembly. Now that doesn't mean we can't praise Him at home. We should. It doesn't mean that we can't give Him thanks at home. We we should be giving Him thanks every day. But when we come into the worship of God, the public worship of God, the corporate worship of God, we are to come with our whole heart and to give thanks to God with the rest of His people and the company of the upright. Christian, you make up the company of the upright or the righteous. And so that is the call we have tonight. Part of our worship should always include Thanksgiving to the Lord. And so, after the psalmist calls us to worship God with thanksgiving, he then gives us three reasons why we should worship God with thanksgiving. And the first is God's work of provision he begins with the greatness of God's work. Verses 2 and 4. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Now, what are the works of God? There are many, aren't they? The Westminster Divines, they summarize all the works of God under two headings. The first great work of God is creation. God created all things in the space of of six 24-hour days and all very good. And we should praise His His name tonight for that great work of creation. The second work are His works of providence. Now this is where God works out His decrees in the here and now. And so even in the in the mundane things of life, we see the great works of God and the, and the providence of God. And, and the psalmist reminds us that the works of the Lord are great. Think of the work of creation. If we believe in biblical creation as we should, that is a great and, uh, and uh, outstanding work, isn't it? God creating all things from nothing by the Word of God. Of his power. Now if we believe in a theory concerning creation. And again it is a theory not proven by science. We believe in a theory we take away from the, the greatness and the glory and the power of God. Now God could have created all things in an instant. In one instant, he could have spoke everything into being, but he chose not to do that. Why? Well, the Bible tells us why, so that we know something about time, and so that we pattern our week after God's creation week. We think of the greatness of God's works of providence. Do you thank God when you make it safely home from a trip? Not knowing what you may have missed in His providence. you thank Him for that great work of redemption that He has given us through through Christ. And so these great works, they are to be studied. And all who study these great works, they delight in them. Children, young people, when you study creation, you will delight in your God. And you study in the, in the works of, of providence, it causes us to delight in our God. Now, where do we study these things? Well, one place is church history, right? We see how God has worked in history. And it brings us great delights in God. Now, the psalmist describes God's works in general. And then he speaks of certain attributes of the Lord, His eternal righteousness. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is His work and His righteousness endures forever. God is righteous in all of His ways and He has always been righteous. He has always existed. God has always been. Genesis 1, 1 again. We go back to Genesis for so much, right? In the beginning, God. Now what does that tell us? That God has always been. And He has always been righteous. His righteousness is eternal, but also God is gracious. Now, we've named many reasons tonight to be thankful because of God's grace. The ultimate part of that is, is the redemption that He has given us through Jesus. If you're a Christian I right, you're a Christian because of the grace of God. You are a Christian not only because of the grace, of God but as the psalmist reminds us because of the compassion of God as well. It is God who provides food for those who fear him. Now we don't think much of God providing us food do we? We should. Now if God in his providence was to send to us some very difficult days in the future where we wonder if we're going to eat it will cause us to think more clearly about the food that God provides. But if God does send those days to us, notice what verse 5 says, He provides food for those who fear Him. Christian, you will not go hungry. God will provide. And so these works of God, these attributes, they, they reveal they are revealed most fully in God's mighty acts. And so how do we respond to these works? Well, man responds to evidences of God at work by seeking for further evidences and by remembering those works already performed. Again, by studying these great works. And so again, we've, we've spoken a little bit of God's provision in, in verse 5. Look at, at verse 6 as well. He has or The latter part of verse 5 first. God remembers His covenant forever. Not only does He provide food for those who fear Him, He remembers His covenant. What covenant? It's the covenant of grace. God works by way of covenants. And there are two. The first is the covenant of works. That was entered into with our first parents and they failed in keeping that covenant. But immediately after that, God was gracious and He told them of the Redeemer. And He showed them by sacrificing animals to clothe them the need of the shed blood of that Redeemer. And that is the covenant of grace. And that's what God remembers. If we are in covenant with God tonight, and that covenant of grace through Jesus, God will never forget that covenant. And He's given us a sign of that, hasn't He? In nature, it's called the rainbow. God's covenant with Noah is a part of the covenant of grace. How sad it is that the sign of God's covenant to man concerning never destroying the world again by way of the flood has been co-opted by wicked sodomites. And that is all in the face of this holy and righteous God that takes care of his people. But then look at verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. What does that mean? It means this, that God is going to advance his kingdom in this world. Now, we have an inheritance. We spoke about that. This morning, and who is the seal of that inheritance? It is the Holy Spirit, isn't it? He is the guarantee we heard Paul say this morning in second Corinthians one. He is a guarantee of our inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. But Christian, understand this tonight that as the Word of God goes forth and his people is shown the power of his works. They will inherit the nations. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And more and more of the wicked of this world will be converted. You believe in the power of preaching. There are many in the church that do not. But we are called to believe in that power because it is through the foolishness of the message preached. Paul tells us as well. That men are saved. Now now the second reason. Not only is God's work of provision. But the the second reason we are to give thanks. In our worship of God. Is God's work uh, of revelation. And the psalmist speaks of this in verses 7 and 8. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. First of all, the works of God's hands are faithful and just. Now, our works many times are not faithful. There are probably times where we all have, let's just say, not given our employer The work that is due to Him. But not God. The works of His hands are faithful. They are just. Again, they they are righteous. But then notice what the psalmist says. All of His precepts, all of His laws, all of His commandments are trustworthy. The whole Word of God is trustworthy for us. We need not doubt God's Word to us tonight. Whatever God says, it's true and righteous. And his word will be performed, the psalmist says in verse 8, with faithfulness and uprightness. God is faithful, God is upright, and so the word his word will be performed and fulfilled with that same faithfulness and uprightness. But then there's a third reason why. We are to give God thanks and worship. And that is found in verse 9. And that is God's work of redemption. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Christian, every day you should wake up. And you should say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Because we can't save ourselves. You see, that's the whole reason we need a Savior. If we could save ourselves, we would be our own Savior and we would not need Jesus, would we? But God has sent redemption to His people. He sent redemption through His Son. God redeems His people from their sin. Some people hear that and they don't like that. What do you mean God redeems his people from their sins? Do you remember the name that was given by the angel? For Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. When Jesus came to this earth, he came to this earth with a a definite purpose and for a definite people to save all that the Father had given to him. And Jesus has done the work for their redemption. Again, why? Because God remembers His covenant. He has commanded His covenant forever. And holy and awesome is His name. And then third and finally, we have the result. What happens when we worship God with thanksgiving? The result is found in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Christian, when you come and you worship God with thanksgiving, you recognize His works and, and all that He has done for you and, you, and you bow down and you praise His holy name, what does that lead to? It leads to the fear of the Lord. And, and all throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what is that fear? Before we were believers, the fear was what? It was a fear of judgment, and rightly so. Before God saved us, we feared that God would cast us into hell. Now, we may not have thought about that. Maybe God used that fear to convert some of us. But when God saved us, the the fear changed from a fear of judgment To a fear that is a reverence for God. and So tonight we gather in fear. But it is a reverence. And that is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know what is wrong with our nation. It is this point tonight that they do not fear God. And if you want to know why God is judging us. It is because of that. We have fallible men trying to be God. And so as we fear God, we we have wisdom. The fear of the Lord, uh, those who practice it have a good understanding. Now notice what the psalmist says. If you want a good understanding of fear of God, you have to practice it. You can't just give it lip service. And this fear of the Lord leads to Praise. It leads to adoration. It leads to service to the Lord. The psalm ends much like it began. His praise endures forever. So what application can we make here tonight? Well, we are called to worship the Lord with thanksgiving. Every Lord's Day. Many times we just think of Thanksgiving one day a year, right? This coming Thursday, we'll eat too much, we'll lay down, we'll go to sleep. I don't know if we'll think much about God's goodness. We should. But we know every day, every Lord's Day that we come together, we are called to worship God with thanksgiving. And we have many reasons to worship God with thanksgiving every Lord's Day. Thanksgiving is always a part of our worship of the Lord. And again, we have so much to be thankful for. Every, every Lord's Day morning and evening, you could come and you could give God thanks for these three reasons. God has provided for you, both physically and spiritually. And many times we think we can provide it for ourselves, but no, it's God. And what did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. You have bread on your table today, tomorrow, and this week. Not because you went to the grocery store, but because God provided it for you. Every Lord's Day morning and evening we have reason to give thanks to God. For he has revealed himself to us Through His Word. Think of the the millions of people tonight that are living in darkness because they don't have the Word of God. Now we know this seems that is getting less and less, right? Thanks to the work of the church and the work of faithful Christians taking the Word of God to places that say the Word of God is off limits. I always laugh at those places. Because they say the Bible's not welcome here, but if you go and you know the right people, you'll find the Bible. But you have every reason to thank God tonight because He has revealed Himself to you through the Word and He has given you understanding. And every Lord's Day morning and evening, we have reason to give thanks to God because God has redeemed us solely by His grace and mercy and based on His covenant. And that promise extends to our children. Parents, are you not glad that tonight, that that when Peter was preaching the day of Pentecost, he said uh, for the crowd to repent and believe the gospel, for the promise is for you and for your children, the promise of the gospel, and to all whom the Lord our God will call. Second, as we worship God with thanksgiving, we will have the fear or the reverence of the Lord. You want to be wise tonight? Then fear God and keep His commandments. That was the last great bit of, of, of command that Solomon gives at the end of Ecclesiastes. Is it? Fear God and keep His commandments. That's, that's the end of it all. That's the end of it. If you want a successful life, then you fear God and keep His commandments. And as you do that, as you fear the Lord, as you reverence the Lord, you will have a good understanding of the one true God. You will have a good understanding of your dependence upon Him for everything, but especially your dependence upon Him for eternal life. And finally tonight, know this, that salvation begins and ends with the God who saves. The God who redeems His people for He has sent redemption to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. After Thanksgiving, we enter what? Into Christmas time, right? The Christmas season. That which is no longer about the Lord. It's about gifts. It's about Santa. And we Christians, we've eaten it up. But why did God send his son? Many times in our service of lessons and carols are us God did not send his son so that we might get gifts on December 25th. He sent his son to save us. And to redeem us. Now you might think. Well I don't need to be saved. Well let me ask you. Are you perfect in all of your ways. Like the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are perfect in all of your ways. Like the Lord Jesus. And, and outwardly in what you do. Inwardly in what you think. And, 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 and what you, you think in your mind. And in your heart. If your life inward and outwardly. Perfectly, perfectly conforms to the law of God. Then, then you need not Jesus. There's not a one of us here tonight that can say that. You see, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they transgressed that first covenant of works and, and we fell into sin with them and God sent His Son to redeem us out of that estate of sin and misery. And as God sent His only begotten Son, His, His Son lived a perfect life that we could not. And He took that perfect obedience to the cross. And there He died. Not for the sins of everyone who has ever lived, or who is living now or will live, but for the sins of His people. And every sin of His, of His children and of those whom the Father gave to Him has been paid in full. And so it is God who saves. It is God who redeems. And so as we come to the table tonight, we should come with what? Thanksgiving. We should be thankful. Lord, you have saved me. You have redeemed me. And as we understand that we do not deserve this grace or mercy that God bestows to us in and through Jesus Christ, it will keep us thankful. When we begin to think that we have earned it, that we deserve it, then we have not, and we will we will not we do not understand the gospel rightly. And so before us tonight in the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation that begins and ends with God. Salvation the fact that God sent his son To redeem his people. Again this is the only legitimate picture of Jesus Christ that we have. The bread and the wine. The bread representing the body of Christ given for us. The wine representing the blood of Christ poured out for us. So we come tonight thankful. We come rejoicing. In the fact that God keeps his covenant. And that He has redeemed us. And again, if you are here tonight and you know not of this redemption, then ask God. Go to Him in prayer. Seek His face. If you do that, it's a sign that God is working on you. And that He is beginning to bring you to His Son. And so come to Christ, forsake your sin, and then you'll come with thanksgiving to worship the God who has redeemed. May God add His blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank You tonight for Your Word. That we can be reminded of the need of coming to worship You with thanksgiving. The Lord, we pray now that as we come to your table that you would bless us with that means of grace that you've given us in the Lord's Supper. That we would come with joyful and thankful hearts. And Father, I pray for any here tonight that, do not, that does not know the Lord Jesus. So Lord, save them. Bring them to Christ. And do so for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come now to open Your Word, to read it, to hear it proclaimed, we ask, O oh God, that Your Holy Spirit would help us to understand that we would see the importance this morning of forgiveness, especially when church discipline has been exercised. Oh Lord, we ask and pray that Your Holy Spirit would give us understanding today. We will give all the honor and glory to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are able to remain standing, please do so and take your copies of God's Word. And turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1, we'll begin at verse 23, and we'll read through verse 11 of chapter 2. Hear now the word of God, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is God speaking to us, so let us pay close attention. But I call God to witness against me. It was not to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth, or it was to spare you. Not that we lowered it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. (coughs) Two Lord's Day mornings ago, we... To verses 12-22 through 22 of 2 Corinthians 1. And we heard Paul boasting at the very beginning of that passage. Boasting in the Corinthians. And how God had brought them to faith. And we then heard of Paul's change of plans. And why those change of plans took place. And finally, his authenticity. Now again, there were some in the church of Corinth, they were saying to the Corinthian believers, you can't trust Paul. After all, he said he was coming to you and he didn't. He said he was going to visit you and he has not yet come. So you cannot trust him. And so Paul continues to write, the the chapter division here is is unfortunate. (coughs) Because Paul continues to write about what we looked at last Sunday morning as well, he continues to speak about his visits to Corinth, about the consequences and effects. But we also have new material introduced here as well in the latter part of our passage. And it deals with something that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you remember that chapter, you know that Paul in that chapter wrote to the Corinthian church to deal with the man who was having an improper relationship With his father's wife. And so Paul wrote to them saying that that man must be disciplined by the church. And so why is church discipline important? We we hear the outcome of the discipline here (coughs) this morning. But why is such discipline important? Well, it is important for the honor of Christ and the purity of the church. In order for the name of Christ not to be sullied, there must be church discipline. In order for the church to remain pure, there must be church discipline. It is difficult, but it is necessary. Without church discipline, the church will become corrupt. Sin will grow in the church, and eventually this, that sin that is not disciplined will, in fact, the whole church. And church discipline is a mark of a true church of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things we learn not only from Scripture, but from the Reformers. If you're to be a true church of the Lord Jesus, then church discipline must be practiced. If there is no church discipline, there is no true church of the Lord Jesus. And so this morning, again, we see the outcome of that discipline that Paul encouraged and and commanded really the Corinthian church to do back in 1 Corinthians. And we see or hear two things in our text this morning. We first hear of of a painful visit that Paul speaks of and then how the church is to forgive the sinner. But we begin with a painful visit in the latter part of chapter 1 and through verse 4 of chapter 2. In verse 23, Paul says, but I call... God, to witness against me. It was to spare you that are refrained from coming again (coughs) to Corinth. Now, at the end of our text last week, Paul informed his readers that they belonged to God. And they knew that they belonged to God because God put His seals of ownership upon them and upon us, the Holy Spirit. Because of that, the Corinthians could count on God's faithfulness. And so Paul calls on God... To be a witness of the truth. Paul here is saying if I'm not telling the truth. then God has every reason to punish me. God has every reason to judge me. Paul knows that God is able to take his life. If he should speak a lie. And so Paul is calling uh, God as witness. To, so that the Corinthians might know. Uh, why he did not come on that painful Visit. It was to spare them that pain. Paul here reveals the the reason for not returning to Corinth as he had promised. Paul had visited them in an attempt to take care of the trouble in the church, and after this visit, he decided not to return so that the Corinthians might repent, but also so that Paul might demonstrate his love for them. He goes on in verse twenty-four. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, in verse 23, Paul is using the singular. Here he's using the, the plural. And he speaks not of himself, but of, of the associates with him. Those who would go and preach with Paul. Those who had been with him in Corinth. And he tells them, we, we do not have lordship over your faith. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, he wants to avoid any ill will on the part <coughs> of the Corinthians, and he does so here by showing them goodwill and and gentleness. We we understand that all are free in the Lord. We are free in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know this morning? We are free in our conscience. But at the same time, we're obligated to help one another. So Paul writes that he and his partners, they do not lord it over the faith of the Corinthians. They are not tyrants. They are not dictators. They are ministers. And they desire to minister to them. And they are also helpers, he says. They are helpers in the fact that they work with the Corinthians for their joy as the Corinthians stand firm In their faith. Now what is that faith? It is saving faith. It is faith in Jesus. They are standing firm. Even though there are troublemakers in their midst. Even though there was a really big troublemaker in their midst. That Paul mentions earlier in 1 Corinthians 5. That the Corinthians are still standing firm. And So Paul says again that he is joyful. Their joy for the Corinthians, He rejoices that the Corinthians are standing firm in their faith, and developing their faith will bring stability, it will bring growth. It will bring happiness in the church in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why developing faith is so important. As Christians, we are called to grow. We are called to work out our salvation with fear. And trembling, part of what you're doing here is to do that, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we grow together as the body, there'll be stability, there'll be growth, there'll be happiness in Christ. And so Paul continues in verses one and two of chapter two. He said, "For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you." For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pain? Paul says he has come to a decision not to visit, not to pay the Corinthians another visit. Why? Because it would bring grief. Now, Paul is not speaking of that initial stay in Corinth, but he's speaking of another visit uh, after he had composed 1 Corinthians. And Paul went. It was not a pleasurable thing. And he wanted to spare the Corinthians heartache. And he wanted to spare them that heartache and grief. That they had experienced before. And so in verse 3 he says. And I, I wrote as I did. So that when I, might, when I came I might not suffer pain. From those who have, should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you. That my joy would be the joy of of them all. Paul wrote to them to, and exhorted them to rectify the situation in the church. He wanted them to be joyful. He, he wanted them to be joyful in the Lord. To eliminate any hard feelings that had arisen between them. And he did not want to afflict his readers anymore. And Paul here is showing his love for the Corinthians. Now we know in 1 Corinthians Paul was quite harsh, wasn't he? It was harsh upon them, and they needed it. The church there was, was, was in great danger, and Paul had to be harsh. And he even mentions that sorrowful letter that he wrote, which was to show them his love. And, and this reminds us uh, of a parent, doesn't it? At times where parents sternly reprove their, their sons or their daughters. Why? Because they love them. Children, if you are reproved by your parents, it's because they love you. Not because they want to ruin your fun. And so Paul here wants to show that kindness and love. And he says in verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you all. The situation in Corinth, Calls Paul, great, we might say, overwhelming heartache. He was grieved by what had happened, and so he writes to them and he wrote to them so that they might know that he still loved them. So they might know that he cared for them. And so, second of all, he then takes that into the, the important thing that the church was to do concerning the sinner. And that was to forgive the sinner. Turn back for a moment to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because it is there that Paul spoke to them previously. Concerning this sinner. First Corinthians 5 beginning at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And that of a kind that is not tolerated even among, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is there not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And So Paul was clear, wasn't he, in 1 Corinthians, what they were to do with this man. And so what is the outcome? Well, the outcome is this, that this man had repented. And that's the purpose of discipline, isn't it? Anytime a member of the church is disciplined by the church, it's not to embarrass them. It's not to make them look bad. The ultimate purpose is so that they will repent of their sin that they so stubbornly would not repent of until the discipline came and be restored fully to the church. In verse 5, Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. It seems that Paul hesitates for a moment as he writes this verse. The thought Paul tries to express is that a certain man has brought grief to the church. A certain man brought grief <coughs> to Paul. And the presence of this person would affect The entire congregation, much as a a bit of yeast, leavens the entire batch of dough. And so again, Paul writes concerning this man. And notice what he says in verse 6. For such a one, the punishment, or this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. By excessive sorrow. The church did what Paul had commanded. They dealt with this man. No doubt they even put him out of the church, handed him over to Satan as Paul had commanded. And now Paul says that is enough. He has repented, he has turned from his sin. And so what were they to do then? They were to forgive this man and comfort him. They were to be merciful to the penitent sinner. They were not to prolong the duration of his punishment. Now that he had repented, they must change their thinking from removal to acceptance. And receive this man once again as a brother from condemnation to restoration. From judgment to forgiveness. From indignation to encouragement. That's what happens when a person is disciplined in the church. And they come with true genuine repentance. And they confess that sin. Then that person is to be restored. Simon Kistemacher put it this way, if there is genuine repentance, there must be full-scale reinstatement. If God forgives the sinner, the church must do no less. We are to forgive, are we not? We are to forgive the sinner who has repented of their sin in the context of the church. And this forgiveness, as Paul reminds the church, must be full. Full. Not a partial forgiveness. Christian, are you glad that God does not partially forgive you? But that in Christ you are forgiven in full? If there's partial forgiveness, guess what? You and I, we would have to suffer in hell for that part that Christ has not forgiven. And so the church is to be a place when the disciplined member repents that he is welcomed back. So that he would not have excessive sorrow. Paul continues in verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote. That I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. The Corinthians all were to forgive this man. (coughs) They were to affirm their love for this man. John Calvin said, stated this, whenever we fail to comfort those that are moved to a sincere confession of their sin, we play into Satan's hands. And is that? Well, if we do not reaffirm our love for the, the sinner who is repented and being restored back to the church, and that sinner is discouraged, and they think, well, what was the use in that? Why did I confess my sin before the church and repent of it? if this is how I'm going to be treated by those who claim to love me. And so Paul wanted to know whether the Corinthians would be obedient, whether they would listen, whether they would administer the church censure to keep the church pure. But now, he says, at the same time, he he counsels them to restore this repentant sinner. In Christian love. And he goes on in verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive I also forgive. Indeed what have I forgiven? If I have forgiven anything. Has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul says that he forgives this man. Just as the church forgives. That he holds no grudge. Against the offender, that he holds no grudges against the Corinthians. And he notes that he and the Corinthians, they are not unaware of Satan's desire. What is that desire? What was the desire of Satan for Peter to sift him like wheat? And that is the same desire that Satan has here this morning with us to sift us as wheat. And to cause us spiritual ruin. Paul is reminding them of something very important that we need to often remind ourselves to to harbor ill will toward a repentant sinner instead of showing love and mercy and grace. This plays right into the hands of, of Satan. Satan hates forgiveness, true forgiveness. Now, he loves that partial forgiveness that we are so inclined to give to someone, right? We say we forgive them, and then we get mad at them again, and we bring it back up. That is not biblical forgiveness. When God forgives us, he forgives us fully. And we are forgiven fully through Christ, who has paid the full price for our sins. You see, the devil, he hates forgiveness. He hates forgiveness. Christian love. He wants to see despondency and despair and darkness. And so Paul here is teaching the Corinthians to forgive one another. (coughs) To forgive one another in love just as Christ has forgiven them. And so this brings us to our first point of application. And it is this, that grudges... And the congregation are and will be quickly exploited by Satan to undermine the church's spiritual health. The devil, he will capitalize on insults. He will capitalize on insults that remain unforgiven and unresolved in the church. He does this by deluding people. By causing us to foster a spirit of animosity that divides and scatters. you know, There's enough animosity in the world. Why is there animosity in the church? There's enough in this fallen world where people will hold a grudge against another person. But it should not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. We're all sinners, yes. We do things that are wrong. Uh, towards God and towards one another, but yet there must be forgiveness. If not, then we let Satan win. Now what is the purpose of the church over against the kingdom of Satan? There's one purpose of the church. It is to ultimately decimate and destroy this pitiful kingdom that Satan says he has. And if we're divided, then we cannot do the work that God has called us to do. You see, it's Satan's design to to frustrate the work of Christ and his church on earth. And he loves nothing more than to scatter the people of God. And and when he does that, he is able for a moment to block the advancement of the church and the kingdom. Now, it will be short-lived. We know that. Christian, we are not to hold grudges. We are not to let unforgiveness destroy the church or destroy you, and that's exactly what will happen. Second of all, we need to understand that church discipline is, is necessary. Again, it's it's always painful, it's never pleasant. I can think of the the, the few cases we have had here in the last 15 years. They have never been pleasant cases to deal with. There were times, and we're honest, we, we as Presbyterians, we moved too slow. And there were times we moved too slow. But part of that was because it's not anything any elder really wants to do. We don't want to discipline members. We don't want to excommunicate those whom we have fellowship with. But it's necessary. And so what is the goal? The goal is the full restoration of the sinner. That's the goal. The goal is this, that whatever sin the person is committing, that they will turn from that sin, turn to Christ who will forgive them fully as they repent, And then they will be fully restored in the church. Now, we don't start out with excommunication, do we? No, we begin with admonishments. A brother or sister is admonished in the Lord. That could be from the pastor, from one elder. And then if if it's not heated, then it goes before the whole session. (coughs) And it's still not heated. Then there will be suspension from the sacraments. Excommunication is the last step. But even with that, the goal is restoration. The goal is that sinner will see the danger that they are in. And they will come and they will truly repent. And when they do, church, we are to forgive them. Now you might say, well that's easy if the sin is not against you. What if it's against me? Guess what? You are to forgive them as well. Remember one day Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, I have a brother who sins against me. How often should I forgive him? Seven times. Surely that's enough, right, Jesus? Seven times. That is more than generous. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now what was Jesus saying? He was saying this, that whenever a brother sins against us and they recognize that sin and they come to us and they say, I repent of my sin that I've committed against you and against God, then we are to forgive them. Now why is that? Well, because God has forgiven us. Let me ask you, how many sins did you commit this week? Would you number them for me this morning? I I doubt it. I I wouldn't number mine either. But there were many sins, correct? We've committed many sins this week. Against God. And every time we have repented of those sins. What has God done? He has forgiven us. And that should be the way it is. Between brothers and sisters in the Lord. We sin. Yes. We will sin against one another. We may sin a lot against one another. But when there is true repentance. There is to be true forgiveness. You see, we are to forgive much, because God through Christ has forgiven much. And we see that this morning in the Lord's Supper, do we not? We see the forgiveness of God through Jesus. And you see, the forgiveness we have from God through the Lord Jesus Christ calls or calls the Lord His very life. He died on a cross and when we think of how cruel that physical death was what about what he suffered spiritually 3 hours of hell upon the cross the full wrath of god being poured out upon the son so that we sinners would be forgiven of our sins so that we sinners might forgive one another And so are you forgiven this morning? Are your sins forgiven? There's only one way to know for sure. And that is to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. He alone can forgive you. He alone can forgive you because He has paid the price in full. He has paid that price in full for any who would come to Him in faith. And so maybe you're here today and you don't know if your sins are forgiven or not. Maybe there's some doubt. Then I would implore you turn from your sins and come and believe in Jesus. Fall at His feet. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. If you do that in faith, if you turn from your sin, He will save you. God forgives much through Christ. God forgives all through His Son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You this morning for Your Word and this reminder that we, we need. We always need to be reminded, O oh Lord, of how we are to forgive one another in the church. And Father, we thank You for the reminder this morning as well of how You have forgiven us through Your Son. oh Lord, I pray for any here today that... does not know of that forgiveness that is found in Jesus, that You would show them that forgiveness that is theirs if they would simply turn from their sin and come and fall at the feet of Christ and find salvation in Him, in Him alone. Lord God, I pray that as we come to the table this morning that we would come free of grudges against any brother or sister, And that we would come trusting solely in Jesus. And Lord, we thank you this morning that as we trust in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. And you will not remember any of our sins against us. Not today or not the last day. Because Jesus has paid the price. Bless not only your word that has been proclaimed, but bless this sacrament.